Buenos dias y bienvenidos. Good morning. Welcome once again to Tiempo. I'm Joe Torres. On today's show, we will tell you about a new podcast series, Que Pasa Long Island, the story of the Secatog Nine. The podcast shares the stories of nine Latino immigrant families that faced discrimination when they settled years ago in Farmingdale. They received help from Hofstra University's Law Clinic. We'll have more on the case, the settlement, and the podcast coming up in just a few minutes. Right now, though, there have been several recent acts of violence by newly arrived migrants here in New York City. A group of migrants assaulted several police officers in Times Square, and a 15-year-old migrant fired several shots in Times Square store, a store there, at police who were trying to capture him. The city also announced a curfew for many migrant shelters to try and curtail the crime. Some immigrant advocates believe the recent crimes create a false sense of chaos and insecurity that threatens law-abiding immigrants. Take a look at the numbers. Overall, the latest numbers show the New York City shelter system has housed almost 174,000 migrants since the crisis began two years ago. The number of those migrants arrested in the city is a very small percentage compared to the number who arrived here. Joining us this morning, Liz Alarcón. She is the daughter of Venezuelan immigrants and the founder and executive director of Pulso, a nonprofit media startup company. Welcome to you, Liz. Thanks for joining us here on Tiempo. Thank you all for having me, Joe. Good to have you. These isolated incidents, as we just pointed out, do not represent the Venezuelan migrant community or the migrant community as a whole. Liz, that's not a widely accepted common fact? It absolutely should be, Joe. Let me tell you a bit more about my community. Venezuelans are totally and absolutely contributing to the fabric and the culture of our communities and of this country. You can't go to any borough in New York without finding una arepera or turn on our mainstream entertainment and seeing people like Lele Pons competing and dancing with the stars, a daughter of Venezuelan immigrants herself. And when we think of the scope of the exodus of Venezuelans out of the country, it's really unprecedented in the Western hemisphere. There's 8 million people who have left, nearly 800,000 of them here in the United States, and less than 1% uh, committing uh, the crimes that have gone viral in the last several days. Now, let me be clear, the actions of a specific few do not represent the community overall, and we're in the country of the rule of law, so anyone who commits any or any sort of crime should absolutely face the consequences, right? That's part of, of why so many people, including Venezuelans, come here to have mm -hmm. that protection. So uh, it absolutely it should be a reminder to all of us that the actions of few do not represent all of us, especially here in the country of immigrants. But Liz, if a few crimes committed by very few migrants is enough to convince some people that many migrants are, in fact, criminals, how do you reverse that way of thinking? One, reminding our communities with spaces like this of the contributions that we all make. And two, also uh, heeding the asks of immigrant advocates over two decades under both Republican and Democratic administrations. It really is time for an overhaul in our immigration system to make sure that this country is doing right by the people who are already here and by those who are seeking their human right to uh, have a immigration process and seek asylum here as well. It's 
so overdue that we have better coordination between our local leaders and our state leaders and our federal leaders to increase the not just transparency, but efficiency of the processing of Mm -hmm. folks so that we can get more relief in our cities and remind folks of the contributions again of immigrants. Look, my cousin uh, from Venezuela is a perfect example. She's here under the TPS for Venezuela program studying to be a dental hygienist. Those are the stories uh, that we need to continue to share of, of what is possible when our processes do work and are implemented. Liz, let me ask you, because it, it, I, I'm with you that that thinking is is a narrow-minded, regressive, sort of superficial approach that people have. It, but I think it applies in so many areas, regretfully, that we've seen. I'm a reporter. Fake news. You're a reporter. All reporters are fake news. Uh, mayors are corrupt in a couple of small towns. Therefore, all mayors are corrupt. Politics, you see this polarization. Do you see it now leaching into the way we see migrants because of what's been happening in the world all around us? Absolutely, Joe. And I think as a media founder myself and as someone who spends a lot of time on social media, it's a really uh, unprecedented how negative narratives uh, are much mm-hmm. more attractive and appealing than the positive narratives that uh, we have the responsibility to share. So I think a lot about values and how we can do a better job at reminding everyone here in our country our American values, right, yeah. of solidarity and community and empathy and equity and highlighting uh, those stories and how immigrants are a part of, of those American values as well. Yeah. I think we all need to do a better job at, at spreading the word on the positive, too. I agree with you, you know, because there's just too much of a polarized way of thinking. Sit tight, Liz. We'll continue our conversation with Liz Alarcón. Still ahead, though, on Tiempo. Oh, you're going to love this. A new podcast series, Que Pasa, Long Island, the story of the Secatog Nine. It's a podcast that shares the stories of nine Latino immigrant families that faced discrimination when they settled years ago in Farmingdale. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Welcome back to Tiempo. There have been several acts of violence by newly arrived migrants here in New York City. And a group of migrants, you might remember, recently assaulted several police officers in Times Square. A 15-year-old migrant fired shots inside a Times Square store as police were trying to capture him. The recent crime has created a really false sense of chaos and insecurity that threatens law-abiding immigrants. That's according to immigrant advocates. And joining us this morning, one of them, Liz Alarcon. She's the daughter of Venezuelan immigrants and the founder founder and executive director of Pulso, and she's here to offer an important perspective. These isolated incidents do not represent the migrant community as a whole. Liz, thank you again for joining us. Tell us about Pulso. I know it dates back to what, 2018? How and when did you did you form this? Six years now, Joe. The mission of Pulso is to combat precisely these negative narratives about our community. If you visit Pulso on TikTok or Instagram or on the podcast or our newsletter, you're going to find the Latino history that nobody taught us and commentary about our community that you won't really find anywhere else. Those success stories about our contributions to this country that Latinos should know about, but everyone else should care about, too. Liz, are your efforts paying off? And if so, how do you know that? 
Aside from sharing content that changes the narrative about our community, the last three election cycles, we've really been focused on getting our community to participate and be civically engaged. So through our platforms, we've helped hundreds of thousands of people register to vote, participate in the elections, take the census, and take action on issues that they care about, all where people are spending most of their time here on their phones. There you go. And in an election year, what you guys are reminding people of is so, so critical. I'm quoting you from your website, Liz. Pulso provides, quote, independent reporting and commentary on issues important to the Latinx community. You're a former producer and a former reporter. You know reporting is one thing, commentary is another. How challenging is it for you and your staff to separate the two and make sure that your followers know the difference between the two. So if you go to our Instagram now, you will see at the top of our cover photo of a commentary piece that it says commentary. When we have a point of view, we make sure to tell you up front uh, because as a, a former a producer and reporter myself, I know the sanctity of the industry and our profession, and I don't want to contribute to the misinformation and dis the disinformation that is unfortunately affecting our community. So we're upfront about it. I find myself when I'm chatting with people about things in the media and they're criticizing us, and that includes you as well, I remind them, if you find yourself saying, I agree with that or I disagree with that, then you're not watching a newscast. You're watching opinion. You're watching commentary because on a newscast, there's nothing to disagree with. The facts are the facts. Finalmente, Liz, let me ask you, you and your team adhere to journalistic standards, truthfulness, fairness, integrity, independence, and accountability. Why isn't balance listed as one of those standards? You know, Joe, I think that the uh, tenets of schools of thought like movement journalism and solutions journalism and building context uh, into uh, the tough issues that we're being faced with today is part of the mission of Pulso, right? I think there's a, a structural reality that we want to bring to our folks, and that allows us to be able to share some tough facts mm -hmm. and that are happening around our country that we feel we want to be able to have the agency to do. Your mission is worthy, and thank you for doing it, Liz. Pulso is the website, and her Google it, and you will educate yourself and inform yourself on the many issues impacting so many Latinos. Liz, un placer. Thank you for being with us. A ustedes por la invitación. Coming up next on Tiempo, we highlight a new podcast series called Que Pasa? Long Island, the story of the Secatog 9. It is a series that explores the landmark court case of nine Farmingdale immigrant families who faced discrimination and almost lost their homes. There is a new podcast, Que Pasa Long Island, the story of the Secatog 9, and it will launch in just a few days. The podcast shares the stories of the immigrant families at the center of a case that dates back 10 years ago. It recounts their traumatic journeys from their native countries, where many live through social unrest, domestic abuse, gang violence. And like so many other families, they made the decision to restart in America. They faced hardships, however, of racism, discrimination, and marginalization when they settled in Farmingdale. 
The families found support and legal representation when they connected with the students and faculty at Hofstra University's Law Reform Advocacy Clinic. And joining us this morning, Mario Murillo and Larry Levy from Hofstra University on why the impact of that case and its final outcome and why it serves as the foundation for this podcast series. Good to have you. This is great. Un placer. Set the table for me in case people heard Secatog 9 and they don't remember. Take me back 10 years ago. What was happening that led into all of this? Well, actually, it goes back 20 years. The, case, the, the, the law reform advocacy clinic started getting involved in yeah. 2004, and there was a whole situation happening with day laborers in Farmingdale that a bunch of organizers were dealing with, and then they somehow connected with the families who were being displaced from their home there in uh, Secatog, the yes. housing complex there. Um, and then, before you know it, uh, the racism started coming out. We started seeing hus direct hostility to these families. Yes. And to cut a long story short, eventually mm -hmm. the, the case was settled out of court, but it was eventually a victory for the families. We'll get to that. Why were the families displaced and who displaced them? They were displaced by a combination of factors. Uh, the, a developer who had taken over the property mm -hmm. with the not only the permission, the encouragement of the village and the village itself. I mean, it, what was clear and, you know, put in really stark language is a lot of white people in the village didn't like the idea mm -hmm. of these poor Latino working hard. Right people who just wanted to be part of the fabric of their community. Mm -hmm. They didn't want them there. They want, and they didn't want the apartments where they were living to be there. They wanted more newer, more gleaming, okay. uh, owner-occupied right. places near the train station. So this goes to court. They found you or you found them? Well, the case was litigated through, uh, and I wish Steph Krieger, the attorney who uh, at Hofstra University who litigated this case for so many years with about 100 of his law students mm. over the eight-year period. Wow. I mean, it was an incredible story in that regard alone. Um, uh, they started working directly with the case, and then when, the, when we were discussing trying to do a program focusing on the Latino immigrant experience on Long Island, uh, we said, let's just focus on this one particular story. Okay. They reached out to me because of my background in, in, in radio and in journalism, right. and we started developing it. And mm -hmm. the most important thing for us from our standpoint was to tell the story of the immigrant families. Yes. Too often, Jones, you know it, with exception to programs like this, the voices of the people most affected by not the immigration heard. policies, right. the mm -hmm. reform policies, they are not heard. We don't hear them. Right yep. now what we're seeing in the border, we don't hear their voices. Yep. So that was one of the essential components mm -hmm. from the beginning, to hear their voices, why they left their countries, how they decided to come to Farmingdale, what happened to them during that crisis. And what was the discrimination that they faced? Well, it, it ranged from uh, uh, unfriendly glances of in course. restaurants right. and other shops to allowing the uh, housing they were living in to deteriorate to the point where some of the children were getting sick. Mm -hmm. uh, it was all laid out in the podcast. It was a, a fairly disgraceful chapter, not only for Long Island, but that particular village. And Mario, this was an eight-year legal battle. Yes, it was. They were displaced from their homes. Where did the families live There's, during those eight years? They were in different places. I mean, in, in 2000, at around 2004, there was a fire in the in the building, a very small, almost insignificant fire. But at that point, because of the uh, uh, the conditions of the building, right. the, they were uh, they were forced to leave, and then so they they started getting housed mm -hmm. in a lot of different locations. I think the bottom line was that. Um, in many ways, the developers who were involved in this in developing that part of Farmingdale and the local officials didn't think that these communities right. 
these people were going to fight back. A and and when? I think that's right. what really is kind of at the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. that it really shows that when you have uh, a will, and these folks were, were struggling for a long time, and you have people to support and work away, with them, right. they, 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 they figured right. out a In way the end, what was the settlement? Well, the, the cash portion of it is, is, is undisclosed. undisclosed. Right. Uh, it ranged from um, the village officially and formally welcoming the people back at a ceremony at Village Hall, mm -hmm. uh, uh, encouraging the building of more affordable housing yep. around the downtown. And you know, the irony of this thing is that Farmingdale today, and you have to give credit to the new mayor of Farmingdale who pushed the, the settlement along, yes. in, in, not the people who were leading the discrimination mm -hmm. and, and the dislocation. Um, the irony is that Farmingdale is kind of like a poster child mm -hmm. for the uh, villages that want to remake themselves yeah. around a model where more people are welcome by virtue of affordable housing, uh, what we call transit-oriented development, smart growth, mm -hmm. and it's a great place, and it's a, a much more yes. diverse place. So sit tight. We'll have much more on the new podcast series, Que Pasa Long Island, the story of the Secatog Nine. It's a podcast that shares the stories of nine Latino immigrant families that faced discrimination when they settled years ago in Farmingdale. Welcome back to Tiempo. There is a new podcast, Que Pasa Long Island, the story of the Secatog Nine. That podcast shares the stories of nine Latino immigrant families that settled in Farmingdale, where they faced discrimination, unfair housing practices, among many other things. In a lengthy legal battle, though, they also found support and legal representation when they connected with the students and faculty at Hofstra University's Law Reform Advocacy Clinic. And educating us this morning, Mario Murillo and Larry Levy from Hofstra University to discuss the case, the final settlement, and really the upcoming podcast series. And Larry, before we get into the series, I do have to ask you this because it's been 10 years removed sure. now. Are we still battling today the same issues that this case fought a decade ago. We're still battling it in some places. Okay. I mean, at Farmingdale, that battle's pretty much over. Mm -hmm. There are other communities where there are large Latino populations that are thriving. Affordable housing is still an issue. Mm -hmm. Discrimination, although it's not like it was 20 years ago, is obviously still there. A problem. But Long Island is a very complicated place to get anything built because you could have the consensus of all the county executives, all the regional players, right. but it's decided on a village by village basis. Mm. So there are some places where affordable housing proposals, where, where uh, Latino or black or Asian populations right. are, you, you got to look under, you can't find anybody. Yeah. And, but, and there are others that are much more diverse. So I think that in the 20 years since this case was brought, mm -hmm. uh, there has been some change. It right. has been positive, but we have a very long way to go. Que pasa? The podcast. Whose idea? I mean, how did it come to fruition? Well, initially it came out of an oral history project looking at the Latino immigrant experience on Long Island. But okay. then because uh, uh, Steph Krieger in the law school was in, working closely with the academic director of the Center for Suburban Studies, Chris yeah. Neat, um, we decided to just focus on that one story of the Secatog Nine as a kind of case study mm -hmm. of the immigrant experience on Long Island. So okay. as opposed to trying to do a kind of a random series of interviews, we right. focus particularly on this one story. And of, as I said, you know, very important, focusing on the families themselves and the advocates and the local organizers who are working with them close by. So the wheels in motion start turning. And when did, how far back 
does the production of this series go? When did this begin? Well, we started it in 2017, so there's a lot <laughs> of we are, seven years. I take responsibility for it. <laughs> it's the interesting thing about podcasting and, and radio. I mean, in the past, we would do radio. You know, I've been doing radio for the better part of my adult life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you would turn something around quickly, get it on the air, and right. boom. But this project, it allowed us to really delve deep. We were doing interviews. We were doing like two, three interviews per person pretty much. So it wasn't like we'd do one quick interview and then we'd okay. take the elements from that. We had tons of material. We had a lot of students working yep. with me from the journalism program, mm -hmm. from other sectors. So it really becomes a production. And it's a multi-platform, multi-person mm -hmm. involvement in right. the recordings and the editing and the writing. Um, COVID hit. Right. It, it set us back a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but and Mario got a big promotion, <laughs> which no, along the way, a, a, an important promotion, and mm -hmm. it didn't have quite the same amount yeah. of time. Who were some of the people that are interviewed in the podcast? Uh, I'm guessing or, you know, former well, we students. Had uh, seven of the nine families represented. Seven of the nine families represented. We had all the local organizers. Many of the local organizers who were involved. Some of the uh, uh, folks who worked in the uh, village of Farmingdale. We had. Um, members of the local community that were supporting, mm -hmm. and other members of the community mm -hmm. that were kind of res had their reservations about the immigrant families. Mm -hmm. And um, so we talked to a lot of people for this. For this. Other than informing the public, Larry, what do you hope that this podcast accomplishes? Well, other than burnishing the reputation of Hofstra University, <laughs> the I think it's rather burnished nicely. the yes. Center for Suburban Studies, we hope that it makes people aware of how hard it is for some people to make their way in this country. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this myth of the, of the suburban dream that my parents had yeah. when they came White out from the fence. Bronx in right. the 50s. But what these families had to go through mm -hmm. and what they were additionally put through by people who were uneducated about them, mm -hmm. who had biases about them. We're hoping that maybe people see this and they have a better understanding of these folks mm -hmm. and instead of greeting them with pitchforks and torches and yep. you know that they will welcome them and realize that these are folks making a tremendous contribution to this co that community and to, and to other many communities yep. where and when can we tune in well it's on everywhere you get your podcast you can find it on most of the major platforms uh, it's also going to be airing in a number of different uh, community mm -hmm. radio stations in the tri-state area um, and we're going to publish it uh, starting next week on the Long Island Advocate which is the the hyper-local news site of the Herbert School of Communication, and trying to fill the news gap. Very and, quickly, how many parts and how long is each part, roughly? Five-part series, all roughly f about 50 to an hour okay. long. So You'll nice learn a lot by listening in. Dive. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Tiempo is now a podcast. You can listen to this show and all the future episodes on the go. All you do is search Tiempo with Joe Torres wherever you get your podcasts or simply scan the QR code on your screen. So now you have two podcasts to tune into. That wraps up this week's show. Thank you once again for spending part of your Sunday with us. I'm Joe Torres. We'll see you next time for another edition of Tiempo.